All right, if you've got your Bibles, let's open up to Judges chapter 11. Uh, as a church, we have been going through the book of Judges together uh, since the beginning of the year. We've taken a few little breaks here and there. Next week, we're going to actually look at the book of Ruth. We're going to do that for four weeks because the book of Ruth happens during the period of Judges. So you can kind of think of it as a, like a mini sermon series within the series. But today we find ourselves in Judges chapter 11, starting in verse 29. I'm actually going to invite Vicki to come. She's going to do our reading. And our reading today actually comes from 2 Peter chapter 3. And so after she reads, I'll pray, and then we'll explain more about why the New Testament reading here in a minute. But please go ahead. Okay. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote, who also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Amen. Would you pray with me? God, we're thankful for your word. Thankful for the, the joy and the opportunity is to gather together like this, to open the scriptures. And God, even for myself personally, um, just having traveled to a region of the world where many people do not have Bibles or most people do not have the Bible study apps and tools that we have. God, where, where many people, they don't even know how to read. Um, God, may we not take for granted the privilege it is to get to gather like this, to open the scriptures, to study your word, that you would shape us and change us and grow us. God, I ask for myself, would you guard my lips and help me to only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word and would you give all of us soft and teachable hearts. We pray this in Jesus' good name. And everyone said, amen. <clears throat> you know, in our culture, we have a saying, ignorance is bliss. Anybody ever said that before? Ignorance is bliss. I think of, uh, you know, an example sometimes maybe as a parent, you hear some loud crash in the other room and you look at your spouse and you say like, what was that? And somebody, ah, ignorance is bliss. And you go back to what you're doing, right? Now we can use that, that saying and it can be funny or it can, it can, it can maybe help a little bit in, in certain trivial matters. But really when you analyze that saying, that's a very foolish statement, isn't it? Ignorance is bliss. Um, you know, I, I hope that never happens, but if, if somebody in here had a, a medical emergency right here in the worship service, and if it were up to me to provide life-saving care, it's not going to go well because I am ignorant beyond just some basic maybe CPR stuff. We would need someone who is not ignorant. We need a medical professional to come and help provide that life-saving care, right? Or if I, again... Lord, I pray it never happens. If I had to do the taxes for the church, uh, you know, there's a reason why we hire an accounting company and, and accountants and CPAs to look over those things because if I had to do the taxes of the church, uh, I would be broadcasting the sermons to you from prison probably. So uh, it's th this idea that ignorance is bliss really falls apart. And what we're going to see in today's passage in the life of Jephthah, one of the judges, is that ignorance is not bliss. In fact, ignorance is very dangerous, and spiritual ignorance 
is most dangerous of all. Spiritual ignorance is most dangerous of all. That to not know truth, to not know uh, the, 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 the word of God, to not know the truth of God actually can lead to some very disastrous results. One uh, pastor and author, very uh, faithful man of God, he's, he's very old now, and, but he's still uh, speaking, writing, teaching, J.I. Packer, he says this, just as it would be cruel to an Amazonian tribesman to fly him to London put him down without explanation in Trafalgar Square and leave him as one who knew nothing of English or England to fend for himself. So we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded as it were with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. At the risk of sounding hyperbolic or the risk of sounding overdramatic, I want you to know and to think about that what we do when we open the word of God has eternal significance. This isn't something we do on a Sunday. This isn't something that you do in your personal life, going to community group. is isn't something you do just because you need something to pass the time or just because it's a good thing to do. These, these words of God have eternal significance. And we're going to see how Jephthah, this, this judge of Israel, how his ignorance caused great tragedy in his own family and in the nation of Israel. Now, this is part two of Jephthah. Um, last week, we had the introduction to Jephthah, and we got to see kind of his, his rise, his, his call to ministry, as it were. Uh, he, uh, he's interesting in that he was not necessarily called by God. He was kind of summoned by the people. They said, hey, we need a leader. And, and Jephthah's this kind of shady character. He was the, the illegitimate son of a prostitute. He was run out of town. It says that he gathered a bunch of like scoundrels around him. Uh, not just one, but multiple Bible commentators I was reading referred to him as a mob boss type of character. Uh, he's a very gifted negotiator and a very gifted warrior, a real tough guy, a real Tony Soprano of judges, if you will. Uh, and so last week, we kind of saw him being used by God in some, in some pretty profound ways. Uh, this week, we're going to see his life really fall apart in some tragic ways. And again, it can be traced back to his spiritual ignorance. So, chapter 11, verse 29. Let's read this story together. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. Make note of that. Right now, the Spirit of the Lord is upon Jephthah. When God wants to use somebody, the Old Testament in particular always tells us that the spirit of the Lord comes upon this person. He's not just acting in his own might or his own strength. God is using them. God is empowering them in a very special way. But note the order in which we learn that. First, the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. The Ammonites are the foreign people who are oppressing Israel. They're harassing them. They're bringing war against them. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out 
of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Okay, a couple things you need to note here. Number one, he's trying to deal with God, isn't he? He's treating God like you would treat a genie in a bottle. I'll do this if you'll do that. I'll do, he's, he's, he's wanting relationship with God that is transactional in nature. And he's bartering with God. Second thing I want you to note is that he makes a very open-ended vow, does he not? Whatever comes out of my house. Now it's possible that Jephthah is thinking of an animal. It was pretty common for people to have the animals in the house with them, particularly the, the smaller ones, maybe a goat, so that people wouldn't steal them or they wouldn't run off. So it's not, it's not impossible to think that he was thinking of an animal, but it's much more likely that he is thinking here of human sacrifice. Again, it says that he gathered many people around him. He had power, he had position, he had prestige, he was a leader. The word whatever can also be translated as whoever. In the, in the Hebrew, it's kind of ambiguous. And because that, it says, look at whatever comes out to meet me. The animals wouldn't be coming out to meet him. A person would come out to meet him, Right? And again, we're trying to think of some big show, just some big display. God, if you give me this battle, I'm going to give you the very best. I'm going I'm to sacrifice maybe one of my servants, maybe one of the people in the home. I'm going I'm to do that for you. He's making a deal with God. So verse 32, so Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them and the Lord gave them into his hand. Notice that there is no conversation between Jephthah and God. God does not affirm his vow. And notice that it already had told us before that vow was made that the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. Jephthah did not need to bargain with God. He already had everything he needed to accomplish the task before him. And this victory here is in no way connected to the vow that Jephthah made. He struck them from Erewer to the neighborhood of Minith, 20 cities as far as Abel Karaman with a great blow. With a great blow, that means it's, he really won convincingly. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. And you notice this, the story of the battle. It's not great drama. It's not a great uh, story of the battle. The author really kind of, the battle becomes secondary. The author of, of the book of Judges really wants us to focus on this vow that Jephthah has made. We're going to see here, even though Jephthah is the conqueror, it's going to be a worse day for the conqueror than it was for the conquered. Verse 34. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child, and besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. Um, I, was, I was gone. I was traveling for, for nine days. And uh, I got home in the mid-morning, after, early afternoon kind of time, around noon. And I went to the school with my wife to pick up all my children from school. And one after another, they kind of ran to me. Daddy, so happy to see me after a week and a half. Even my, my 12-year-old, my oldest daughter, who's very cool, <laughs> big smile, ran to me, big hug. It's kind of like that. 
with tambourines and with dances. She's celebrating her dad. Her dad's a big war hero. Her dad just got rid of the Ammonites. The word has spread throughout the country. God used Jephthah in this amazing way to deliver his people. The daughter is the first one to come out of the house. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. And you have become the cause of great trouble to me. That double repetition. Anytime you see that in in Hebrew, it's there intentionally for emphasis. He's laying the blame on her. For I've opened my mouth to the Lord and I cannot take back my vow. Verse 36, and she said to him, my father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. And there's something tragic and and beautiful about her faithfulness there. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companion. So she's a young woman. She's not yet been married. Very likely 13, 14, 15 years old. And in our day, um, we, we've, we've known people, or maybe you've known just the pain of, of infertility or childlessness. We know that in, in many families, even in our church, people have experienced that type of pain. In this day and in this culture as well, childlessness was like the supreme tragedy for a woman because that was how you were able to carry on the family line, was by bearing children. So here she's saying, you've, you've made this vow to the Lord, You have to fulfill it. You opened your mouth to God. You have to fulfill it. I just want two months to go with my friends into the mountains and to weep and to mourn this tragedy. So she said, go. So he said, go. And he sent her away for two months and she departed. She and her companions and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father. I don't know about you, but I know for for myself, there'd be a temptation maybe to try to run away or to leave, but she's, She's at least bound by a, a code of honor or knowing that her father took this oath before the Lord. At the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. It's like the author of Judges can't even bring himself to bluntly say what happened. Such a soft moment, such a tender moment, such a heartbreaking moment. She had never known a man and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. Now, I don't know about you. At this point in the story, I have many questions. I have many things I'd like to ask of the author of Judges, and unfortunately, the author of Judges doesn't seem maybe interested in answering my questions. The author of Judges wants to show us what he wants to show us. The Holy Spirit wants to show us what he wants to show us. Continuing on to verse 12, I mean, you just have to imagine Jephthah's still in the throes of mourning the loss of his daughter. He's still in the middle of of grieving this. Then the men of Ephraim were called to arms and they crossed to Zephron and said to Jephthah, why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites, but you did not call us to go with you? The Ephraimites are a, a group of people. They're one of the tribes of Israel. This is the people of God. We've seen them do this before. Do you guys remember who they did this to before? Gideon. 
you go back a few chapters, same thing. Gideon wins this big battle and the people of Ephraim with, uh, with all of their FOMO, you guys familiar with FOMO? Fear of missing out. Uh, they come and they get in his grill. Like, hey, why didn't you call us to go with you? Why didn't you, why didn't you let us be a part of the battle? They did that with Gideon. Gideon used some smooth talking and some diplomacy to kind of talk them off the ledge. Here are the Ammonites, or I'm sorry, the, the Ephraimites. You didn't call us to fight the Ammonites. We will burn your house over you with fire. Oh, okay. You're going to kill me and burn my house. Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. And when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. Like I asked, I already tried and you did nothing. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand. And crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up this day to fight against me? Now, if you think back to earlier in chapter 11, like, okay, good. Jephthah is using his diplomacy. He's using his negotiating skills. He's going to do like Gideon did. He's going to talk them off the ledge. No. Verse 4, Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. He's like, I'm I'm, I'm not not talking about this. I'm just going to take you on. And here we have civil war in the nation of Israel. And the men of Gilead, that's Jephthah's people, struck Ephraim, that's the FOMO people, because they said, you are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. Uh, it's, it's, it's a little bit subtle in there, but there's almost like a racial slur there, a tribal insult. Oh, you're, you're like half-breeds, you're refugees, you're, you're fugitives of Ephraim. So the men of Gilead said, fine, let's do this. And the Gileadites, they captured the fords of the Jordan River, the strategic area against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, hey, let me cross over, the men of Gilead said to him, well, are you an Ephraimite? When he said no, they said to him, well, then say Shibboleth. That's a word that means grain. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. Okay, this is one of those funny, not funny moments, okay? I want you to imagine for a moment that we put our security guards outside of the theater here at the end of this service and said, hey, listen, we're going to let all you go, except if you're from Boston. And if you're from Boston, we're going to catch you. And people come out and we're like, hey, are, are, are you from Boston? No. And they say like, okay, well then say we parked the car. And they're like, ah, we parked the car. We're like, we got you. And we boom, we just take them out, right? That's kind of, that's, it's funny, it's not funny, but that's what's happening here. They're using a tribal difference in dialect, a very minor little thing, shibboleth, sibboleth, to find those people who are from Ephraim. And it says to put them to death. Verse six continues and says, at that time, 40 2,000 of the Ephraimites fell. You go back to the book of Judges. That is more Israelites have died at the hands of other Israelites than have died through all of the other conquerors before them. This is tragic. This is heartbreaking that 42,000 of the people of God would be killed because of this rivalry and conflict between these two groups of people. Jephthah judged Israel six years, then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. 
And thus ends the life of of Jephthah. Now, thinking about his life, like what has led to this? How did we end up in this mess? How did his family end up in such a deep tragedy? How did he lead the nation into such a deep tragedy, a civil war? Friends, I would submit to you, it is because of his spiritual ignorance. The, The worst case here is that Jephthah is willing to commit human sacrifice. That's the worst case. He, he's basically, so interesting. The people, the Ammonites who are oppressing them, the Ammonites worshiped a God named Molech. And Molech was a false God, an idol, a deity who was known, one of the, the hallmark ways that people would worship Molech is through child sacrifice. And here, Jephthah is saying to God, God, if you help me defeat those Ammonites, I'll worship you with human sacrifice the way the Ammonites worship their God. You talk about mixed up in the head. You want to talk about not being faithful to the God of Israel, the, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that's the worst case scenario, but the, even just the best case, maybe, maybe you think he intended to, to sacrifice an animal, and that's okay. That, that's, it's a hard interpretation spot there. Maybe you think he only intended to uh, sacrifice an animal. You have to at least know he was willing to go through with it. The best case is he's very ignorant of God's word. He's very ignorant of God's word. At this point in the story, Jephthah would not have had the whole Bible as we have it today. Jephthah would have had the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and probably, possibly, some of the book of Joshua. That's what he would have had available to him. But even in those earliest books of the Bible, there is enough of God's character, there is enough of God's grace, there is enough of God's will for him to have known to avoid this tragedy. Let me show this to you. First of all, we can see, here's some of what his ignorance led to. First of all, his ignorance leads him to blame shifting. Did you guys notice that? Did you notice that? That he gets there to his daughter and and the daughter walks out and he says, you have brought me very low. You have been the cause of my pain. No self-reflection, no look at his own life, no look at his own heart, no look at the word of God that talks about people having to, uh, at that time, having to offer sacrifices for their own sins. He didn't take responsibility. He blame shifts. He puts it on his daughter. I mean, it's, it's, It's honorable and it's admirable in one sense that he was wanting to stick with his vow to God. But it's tragic the way this all plays out. Also, he should have known that he should not have made such a vow. This is a rash vow. It is not a thought-through vow. It's a foolish vow. He just kind of pops off and he spouts off, God, whatever whatever walks out my door. I mean, think about that type of open-ended thing. The book of Deuteronomy, which Jephthah would have had available to him, says, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. First of all, friends, let that be a lesson to us with our words and our promises that we make, right? Bible says, let your yes be yes, and your no be no. That if you make a commitment, you need to follow through on it. But the book of Deuteronomy also says, 23 verse 22 says, if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. Basically, what the book of Deuteronomy is saying, count the cost, or, or maybe even more simply, think before you speak. Think before you promise something. Maybe pray about it for a little while. Maybe go talk to somebody who could give you wise counsel. Don't just make some foolish vow. So again, I'm, it's 
on the one hand, it's, it's good that Jephthah knew, like, I have to fulfill this, but he shouldn't have made it in the first place. Third, he should have known that God is not pleased with human sacrifice. Even if that wasn't his intention, he still followed through with it. He should have known that Deuteronomy 18, as far as many other places, God does not want you to sacrifice other human beings. The sacrificial system was set up so that the life of an animal could be sacrificed for the life of the people, ultimately foreshadowing the sacrifice that Jesus is going to make for our salvation and for our freedom. He should have known that it was completely out of bounds to offer a human sacrifice. And number four, he should have known that in Leviticus 27, God already made a way of escape, as it were. In Leviticus 27, in the law of Moses, it talks about if you've vowed someone to the Lord and you've pledged this person to the Lord, you can actually redeem them back with a price of money. You can buy them back if you've, if you've made that sort of a vow. They can be purchased. Their freedom can be purchased because our God is a God of grace. And because our God, the, the Bible says that if there's no temptation that comes upon us where God has not also provided a way of escape. Isn't that good news for us? Some of us, you feel like I'm being tempted. There's no way out. Yes, there is. There's freedom in the Lord to, to find what is pleasing to him and what is holy before him. But Jephthah it would appear knows none of this. This is amazing because if you look back in chapter 11, he knows the history of Israel. He knows the history of the treaties. He knows how to communicate. So he knows something of God, but he does not actually know the character of God. And he certainly doesn't know the word of God. Ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance leads to great tragedy in his family and ignorance, spiritual ignorance leads to great tragedy in the nation of Israel. Now, the good news is God has not left us in our ignorance. Amen? God has not left us in our ignorance. One of the things that we know fundamentally about our God is that our God is a self-revealing God. That God loves to reveal himself. God loves to show himself to us. We can kind of categorize God's revelation in two ways. Two, two um, Categories I hope will helpful for you. The first is just general revelation. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. You can know about God by looking at his creation. You can know something of God by, by uh, thinking through wisdom and even just common sense and conscience. There are many ways in a general sense that God reveals himself. When we were there in Uganda, in this little tiny village, there's, there's no lights. There's no light pollution. And one night, late at night, I was walking back from the boys' dormitory. I was walking back to the guest house where we were staying. And I about jumped out of my skin because Kyle said, hey, who's that? I, I thought, hey, who's that? Uh, is that a mountain lion? No, I guess not because you're talking to me. But I still was going to like stab him with a stick. Scared me to death. So we ended up having this conversation, me, Kyle, and the uh, pastor, Peter. We ended up standing outside for about a half an hour having a conversation. But at one point, I just trailed off because there in the pitch black, in the middle of uh, just the Ugandan, uh, the bush, I looked up and you could see the stars. Like, I have never seen them before. It's right on the equator. And they were, the stars were so big and the constellations were so big and the Big Dipper was like even bigger. And I could actually see like um, the Milky Way and the galaxies and just, just my, my jaw was hanging open. 
get to see the beauty and the glory and the majesty and the power and the immensity of God just through his creation, amen? What a, what a beautiful God we serve. What a powerful God we serve. We can know something of our God in that general sense, but even more so, the Bible says that God has given us what we call special revelation, that God discloses himself in special ways throughout history to various people, uh, the apostles and the prophets, who wrote these things down for us in the scripture so that we could know God, not just in a general sense, but in a very specific way. Peter, one of, one of Jesus' disciples, says in, in 2 Peter 1, he says, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, This wasn't something that men just thought up on their own, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that God has spoken through human beings, through people throughout history. And and there's there's a divine mystery in that. These are the writings of man, but they are simultaneously fully the writings of God. And this was, this was for our benefit, for our growth, so that we can know our God. Now it's important to remember that in our pursuit of knowing God, we cannot know God exhaustively. Okay? Think about this. God is infinite. We are finite. Thank you. If you ever find a teacher or a pastor or a leader who says that they have completely and totally figured out God, run. Okay? Because they are a liar and a charlatan. God is, he's infinite. Knowing him completely is beyond our capacity. The the book of Romans, the apostle Paul says, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? We cannot know God exhaustively. We will spend all of eternity as the people of God, like the angels circling the throne, crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord our God because we're gonna just continue to see him in his eternal, infinite glory revealed to us. Anybody looking forward to that? That sounds awesome. Because our God is, is beyond our full comprehension. Now, we cannot know God exhaustively, but, friends, this is important to remember too. What we know of God, we can know God truly. We can know him truly. Even though we know in part and we see in part what God has given to us, the Bible says we have everything that we need for life and for godliness. We have everything we need for salvation. We have everything we need to be his people, to be the church. We have everything we need until that day that we see him face to face. In Second John, the, or sorry, in 1 John, the apostle Paul says, I write these things to you, not because you don't know the truth, but because you do. You do know the truth. It can, there can be a false type of humility to lean so much into the, what we cannot know we, we do need to speak of mystery. We do need to speak of the inexhaustible riches of the knowledge of God. But we do not then need to throw out, so I don't know anything. No, God has shown us some things and we do know those things clearly. You guys feel that tension? Both confidence and humility, both certainty and wrestling, trust, faith, and number four, the ultimate revelation, revel, revelation of God is in Jesus Christ. If you remember back last year, year before when we studied the book of Hebrews, 
The author of Hebrews says, long ago, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers uh, you know, through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. So God's ultimate self-revelation, God's ultimate communication to mankind is in Jesus Christ. There was a conversation between Jesus and his disciples and, and he was talking about the father. Jesus was teaching about what the father is like. And one of the disciples spoke up and said, well, when will you show us the father? And Jesus said, how long have I been with you? If you've seen me, you've seen the father. Jesus just basically said, you want to know what God is like? You look at me. That's either a madman or that's God. <laughs> Think about that. He says, you want to know what God's like? You look at me. And the ultimate thing that God has revealed to us in his son, Jesus, is that he is a God of grace. Because Jesus said that he came to lay his life down, to die on a cross, to shed his blood that we might be saved. Jesus said that he and his father were in perfect unity before the world ever was. We see in the pages of the scripture that, that, that God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the three persons of the Trinity made an eternal covenant to rescue and to redeem sinners like you and sinners like me through Jesus on the cross and through his resurrection from the dead. This is amazing, friends. This is what we see most fundamentally about our God is that he is a God who has come on a rescue mission to save us. And it makes me think of Jephthah to where Jephthah made a rash and a foolish vow that ended up costing his daughter her life. God made an eternal decree that cost his son his life to redeem us. Jephthah's spiritual ignorance led to great tragedy. God's purpose in sending Jesus to die leads to eternal glory. What an amazing God we serve, amen? What an amazing king we serve. Now, I want to say this to you. We are privileged, are we not? To have the types of resources and, I mean, just a printed Bible. You think about in the history of the world, how many people had a written copy of the very words of God available to them. Printing press is only, what, 500-ish years old? Uh, and, 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 and the most common thing in all of world history has actually been uh, illiteracy. For many years, if you were a follower of Jesus, you had to trust that what the priest or the leader or the pastor, whoever was saying to you, was true. Think about how privileged we are. Widespread literacy, widespread availability. I can literally go onto my phone here and I can pull up 200 different translations of the Bible and 2,000 different commentaries and insights that people have given to us. We are privileged, are we not? And it's, it's particularly fresh in my mind after being in the villages of Uganda where the majority of the people that I spoke to, especially the older ones, the younger ones are learning, but the older ones, they couldn't read and they couldn't write. And I wanted to tell them, hey, turn in your, you know, turn in your Bibles to, oh, well, okay. Shame on me. I want to go back to our New Testament reading from 2 Peter because I want you to see that, that Peter, writing in the New Testament after the time of Jesus, the same thing that happened in Jephthah's life, it's, it's still true today. He's talking about the Apostle Paul. He's talking about Apostle, the Apostle Paul writing these letters 
And these letters are going out to people. And he says, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Does Peter get an amen from anybody in the church today, right? Anybody ever read the Bible? There are some things in here that are kind of hard to understand, right? Yes, let's be honest. This is a church. Let's be honest, okay? So there are some things that are hard to understand. But he says that the ignorant, there's our word, the ignorant and the unstable twist them to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. The ignorant and unstable twist them to their own, what? Destruction. To be ignorant of the word of God, or to twist the word of God, is to lead to destruction. You, therefore, here's what we're going to do. You, therefore, beloved, hey, remember you're loved. Remember you're loved by God. This isn't a guilt trip. This isn't a fear thing. This is you're loved by God. You've been saved by God. You've been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus, Peter's already told us. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace, everybody say grace, and knowledge, say knowledge, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Don't be ignorant of God's word. Leads to destruction. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Let me just speak to you. I want you to hear my heart in this, okay? If you spent a lot of time this weekend paying attention to the NFL draft, and you can name all of the players that the Seahawks drafted. I only can remember one name of one player that they drafted because it's Mike Tyson, and it's not that Mike Tyson. It's a different Mike Tyson. God bless you. I'm glad that you have a fun hobby. But if all of the names of those Seahawks draftees means that it pushes out of your mind the names of the people and the stories of the word of God, then I have concern for you. If you can tell me the plot to all 37 Avengers movies, fine. I'm not trying to cast judgment on you. If you enjoy the Avengers, DC is still better than Marvel. I'll pray for you. It's fine, okay? But if that means you don't remember the story of redemptive history in the scriptures, that you, you're not influenced more by this story than you are by that story, then I have concerns for you. Can you hear my heart in this, friends? I do not want this to be a legalistic thing, but I do want to share with you my concern as one of your pastors, that you would be more knowledgeable of the word of God, that you'd be more grounded in the story of God's redemption, that you'd be more grounded in these truths than anything else that influences you in our world or in your culture. And may we not miss out on the opportunities that we have, just magazines and articles and blog posts and books and writings and all sorts of things. But may we be the type of people that go to the scriptures ourselves. May we be like the the church in Berea where it says in Acts that they, they listened to what Paul said and then they went to the scriptures and they diligently studied it out for themselves. Friends, I love getting to be your preaching pastor. It is one of my greatest joys in life. It is, it is an absolute privilege that I get to stand before you most Sundays, open the scriptures and teach you and I hope to be a faithful guide. But just because I say it doesn't automatically mean that it's true. You need to search the word of God for yourself. Amen? Because I go back and listen sometimes to sermons that I preach and I disagree with me, okay? So it's just the way, it's just the way it goes. God's growing all of us and shaping all of us and refining all of us. That's, that's my concern. I want you to grow in the knowledge of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, one other quick concern. 
Some of you are sitting here and you're saying, yes, thank you, Pastor Aaron. We do need to grow in the knowledge. And I'm really glad that you're saying this because I have had some serious Facebook correction stored up within me. And now I'm going to unleash it upon every error that I see on the internet. Let me, let me remind you, grow in the grace and knowledge. First of all, you don't have enough time to correct everything that's out there on the internet, okay? Because as we sit here right now, there are people putting false news out there right now. You don't have time. But second of all, true knowledge of the holy, true knowledge of God should lead to greater humility. The more you learn about God, the more you realize how inexhaustible are the riches of the knowledge of God and how much you don't actually know. So true knowledge should lead to humility, amen? So I'm thankful and faithful, I'm I'm thankful and grateful for opportunities to correct a brother or sister when they're in error, to have discussion, dialogue, even debate. But may we do so with an attitude and a heart of grace. John chapter one says that Jesus came full of grace and truth. He didn't soften or compromise on either. And if we're growing in the fullness of Christ, then both grace and truth should be markers of our lives. Amen? That is my prayer for us. That is my hope for us as Sound City Bible Church, that we would grow in a knowledge of the truth, knowledge of the scriptures. This is why we do every week. We just gather, we open the Bible. Let's see what God's already said to us. And I want you to go to the word of God for yourself. And I want it to lead you to grace. And as you communicate that with others, to do so with humility. I'm thankful that God has not left us in our ignorance. Amen? On our own, we're ignorant. In Christ, we are wise. Wise unto salvation. And I want to call us to a time now of responding to that grace and to that wisdom he's given to us. The first way we're going to respond is through the giving of our tithes and our offerings. I'll invite our volunteers to begin collecting. If you're a guest or a visitor, I don't want you to feel obligated to give like some sort of a pressure, but I do want to invite all of you to give as an act of worship. Everything we have belongs to God. And so when you come to a knowledge of that, then you're invited to worship him with what you've been given to help support the work of the ministry here, to support the work of the ministry even overseas, things that we support as a church. Just give with a heart of worship, not a heart of compulsion, duty, obligation. God doesn't want your arm-twisted contributions. He wants your worshipful heart. There's a way to text to give. The number's on the screen there. If you want to give online, you can do that. If you need an envelope, they're out there to connect us. Let me read through some discussion questions. Things to help us this week in our community groups to wrestle through this this passage. What sources of truth in the world are competing for our attention and why is it so important to be shaped by, informed by, and grounded in the scripture? Number two, what are the ways that God has revealed himself and how is the gospel of Jesus the ultimate revelation of God? Number three, Jesus came full of grace and truth. If you were to be imbalanced one way or the other, which way would you lean? Would you be so full of grace that you're afraid to share some truth with somebody, which isn't really grace? Or would you lean so hard on truth that you beat people up, which isn't real truth? We, I think we all maybe would tend towards one ditch or the other. Let's be honest about it. And number three, how is God calling you to increase your knowledge of him to avoid spiritual ignorance? Things to pray about. We want to be a praying church. Pray that God would teach us his truth so that we would love him more and follow him more closely and pray that God would give us opportunities to share his truth and that we would do so with an attitude of grace. Amen? We're also going to respond by celebrating the Lord's table. The volunteers will pass out the elements. I'll ask you to hold on to this. this. This simple bread and cup is a memorial meal for us of the death of Jesus. 
This is one of the things that we do know that our Savior Jesus laid down his life for us. I invite the musicians to come as well as we get ready to uh, respond with singing and with a celebration of the Lord's table. Before we partake, let me read from 1 Corinthians 11 to remind us of what we're doing here. The Apostle Paul writes that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, Jesus broke the bread and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after saying, after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, today as we, as we take this bread and we take this cup, let's praise God that we are not ignorant of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Amen. This is a good thing that we can celebrate. That God did not leave us to our broken and depraved mind, but he came to show himself to us. And then, friends, listen, there's an an important call to reflect. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I want to ask you to, before you take of the bread before you drink of the cup. I want to ask you to prayerfully consider, God, where have I been content with spiritual ignorance? Where have I not pressed in to know you more and to know your ways more? God, where do you want to shape me, grow me, challenge me, correct me? I invite you to that time of reflection. And then when you're ready, you can stand to your feet. The band is going to lead us in some songs. And the first song um, speaks about God being unwilling to leave us to our own devices, but that he came and rescued us. And so I invite you, if you want to even sit for a minute before you stand to your feet and sing, you're welcome to do so. So I'll invite you to eat of the bread, drink of the cup, and then stand to your feet and, and join us in song as you're ready. Let me pray. God, thank you that you're a God who reveals himself to us. We would not have known you if you had not revealed yourself to us. And God, thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. We see your goodness and your glory. And God, if there are any of our friends here today who do not know you, that they have not uh, trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior, God, I pray that today would be the day that you do that miraculous work in their heart to where they come to you no longer ignorant of the gospel, no longer ignorant of what you have done for us in Jesus and that they would give their lives to you today and we get to welcome them as a part of the family. God, I ask and pray for this time of response. Would you stir deeply in our hearts a desire and a passion to be amazed time and time again, to stand in awe, to stand in wonder of who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.